you see all today. And uh, there is a, a, should be two Bibles on each pew. And so if you want to uh, hold a Bible, if your phone dies or something like that, or you don't like your Bible, or you want the ESV translation where we preach from, uh, the, the sermon is on page 401 in the Blue Bibles. And so if you want to look, that's, that's there for you. So glad we're getting those back in the pews and everything. And so as we get back into some normalcy, so good to see you today on this uh, May 23rd, this Sunday. And uh, it's starting to get hot. I, heard, I hear it's going to be hot this week. We've had a great spring. It was almost lulling us into thinking that summer would never come. Well, summer's here. And I experienced it yesterday when I went to the zoo in Columbia. And uh, last, uh, last year, uh, we, when we were still kind of locked down and everything, not a lot of places were open, we got a zoo pass, uh, a year-long zoo pass to see uh, that we'd go to the zoo in Columbia a few times. And so we wanted to get one last trip in before our pass expired here in a few weeks. So we went to the zoo. And we always, when we go through Columbia, I like to stop at my favorite uh, restaurant that I grew up eating at, Rush's. You ever been to Rush's before? They have great cheeseburgers and chicken and hot dogs. And so I stopped in Rush's. You can only get, you know, Columbia has these great places. You can only get in Columbia, unfortunately. Like Rush's is one of them. You can only get there. And so we stopped there, the one there in uh, Lexington, West Columbia, which is only a few minutes from the zoo. So as we were leaving, I put the, the address of the zoo into uh, uh, my phone, and it took me uh, to uh, the, the zoo. But it took me the back way in the back entrance, which I know as a someone who grew up in Columbia, that there's the zoo and then there's the botanical gardens, which is not the same thing, but they are connected by this trail. And so it took me to the botanical gardens, which is kind of the back entrance of the zoo. So we pull in and there's not a lot of cars there. And, and I'm thinking to myself, well, this is good. This is kind of like a secret parking spot and in and out real quick. And I, and I thought to myself, but we are going to have to walk. There's a trail connecting the two. And I wasn't sure how long it was. So I was a little worried about that. So we parked and we pulled in and, and, uh, and went up to the lady there checking us in. And we checked our pass in. I said, now, now how, how long is the walk? Is it, is it bad? Because we have a stroller and all these children and everything. And, and the woman looked at me. with She had a mask on, but with concern in her eyes. I could see a lot just in her eyes. And uh, she said, it, uh, it's three-tenths of a mile. I'm thinking, that's nothing. Three-tenths of a mile, that's no problem. But, but it's up and down a lot of hills, and you got to cross the river and all that. I'm thinking, that's probably fine. We'll, we'll do that. That's, that's good. We'll, it'll be fun. We'll take a little, a little stroll. And so we uh, went ahead and entered that way. We went through the gardens and everything. It was still kind of shady and cool at this point. And then we got to the part where you, it connects from the gardens to the zoo. And usually there's a tram running. But they can't find enough workers at the zoo right now for different reasons. And so there's no tram running. And so well, that's fine. We'll just walk it. And so we walked kind of around the trail and down the tra- and Then we went down the hill and kind of up a hill and everything. And then we're still walking around. I'm thinking to myself, okay, uh, we're not even like halfway there yet. So I started getting a little like a little anxious at this point because I'm thinking we're going to have to walk this on the way back, right? And uh, so then you went, there's this big hill you kind of walk down, and there's benches everywhere. And I'm thinking, oh, that's nice to have benches for people who need to rest, who need it, and that kind of thing. And I'm just pushing the stroller, and then I'm thinking to myself, I might need to pace myself a little bit here. And then they come all the way down the hill, which I'm thinking, I'm going to have to walk up that on the way back, and it's going to be hotter. And we get down at the bottom of the hill, and there's this long bridge crossing the Congaree River, which is nice and flat. And then we finally get into the zoo. And, and everything. But the whole time I'm in the zoo, I'm thinking, all right, we're going to have to walk back. And this is, this is not going to be easy. And, uh, and Emily's like, well, why don't maybe you just uh, walk back and drive around and pick us up. 
And I'm thinking, well, I could do that, but I, you know, I, I might walk off and you never, may never see me again, or I might not make it back. I don't, you know, it's been a long time since I've done a hike. And I joked to the family, I said, we went to the zoo and a hike broke out. And, uh, <laughs> but, but so we, we kind of had a couple hours to prepare us. We got John David to get on the carousel, which is what he wanted to do. And he wanted to feed the giraffe and we fed the giraffe and then it started getting Columbia hot at this point. There's no breeze in anywhere of Columbia, as you know. And so I said, okay, I think we need to, I, th I think we are just all in this together. We're just all going to have to walk back together. And, uh, and I, the kids were fine. But uh, so we, we go back across the bridge. And, you know, across the bridge, there's not an inch of shade the whole way across the bridge. We get, and then we get to the bottom of the hill. And I look up, and I'm thinking, whoa, I don't remember that at all. And there's a man walking down the hill. And he, he looks over at me and he says, you got a long way to go. I was like, thanks a lot, right? So I just told Emily, and I said, listen, we're just going to take our time. You know, we, it may take us an hour to get out of here, but we're going to take our time walking up the hill. And so we walk up the hill, and then there's these two benches that I was making fun of earlier. I was like, oh, there's benches to sit down. Now I know why they're here. I sat on the bench. We rested for a while. And then you know, Annabeth's doing cartwheels down the hill and all kind of stuff. And I'm like, save your energy, children. Save your energy, kids. We finally get out of it, right? But there was a point where we knew that like, we had to finish what we started. Like, there's no way, there's no turning back. Like, there's no helicopter going to take you out or anything. Like, you've got to get up the hill. You've got to get out, and it's hot, and you're going to and you're going to do it. And and then I saw other people walking down the hill, and I almost wanted to warn them, like, turn around, stop, go park in the main place, right? But sometimes finishing what you start and thinking about how you're going to finish what you start is the hardest part of starting something. And we're looking at a passage of scripture today where Nehemiah finally finishes building the wall, but it wasn't easy. Nehemiah chapter 6, and we're going to read just the first nine verses before we get into it. We're going to cover much more. He says in verse 1, there's our friends again, Sanballat and Tobiah. When Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates. Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together at Hecaphirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messenger, messengers to them saying, then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Heavenly Father, as we continue to worship today, as you put spiritual challenges in our life, as you give us visions in our life, Lord, whether it's, it's preaching or leading worship or teaching a class or discipling someone or simply getting uh, acclimated with our Bible and, and reading a Bible plan or praying more or inviting someone to church or, uh, or taking that child down the street to church or whatever it is, Father, as you put something in our heart that is kingdom work, Father, we know that it will be harder to finish sometimes than it is to start. And our prayer today is Nehemiah's prayer, Lord. God, strengthen our hands. Lord, as we continue to emerge <clears throat> from the effects of the pandemic, we have a great, big uh, charge in front of us to make disciples of all nations. Strengthen our hands to do so today, Father. And as, you, as we look at this scripture today, I pray that each and every one of us will see exactly what it is that we are to see today. 
and how it applies to our life individually, specifically and as a church as well. Lord, we thank you for Jesus who makes these things possible. And I pray that my words are his words and that you fill me with your spirit today. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. When you're trying to finish something that you've started, when it's a kingdom directive, it's a spiritual vision in your life, I want you to realize three things that will happen. And many times do happen. Three things. Number one, there will be distractions <clears throat> to avoid. There will be distractions to avoid. Verse one. Now, when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall, verse 2 says, they sent to me a message. And they said, come stop what he was doing and then entertain these detractors who had a history of wanting to stop what he was doing. It made no logical sense for him at the very least. But they persisted. Look at verse 4. And they sent to me four times in this way. And I answered them in the same manner. Now, at this point in our society, we, we would call this harassment. Uh, maybe we would answer the phone and we'd say, take us off the, do, put us on the do not call list. I don't know what we would say. We'd block their number or something like this. We, we, we would get maybe the police involved. They're harassing Nehemiah this time. And then finally, a fifth letter comes with false claims behind Nehemiah's motivations. Look at verse 5. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written this, it's reported among the nations. And Geshem also says it, so you know it's true, <laughs> that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That's why you're rebuilding the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. You've also set up prophets to proclaim that you are the king of Judah. And now the king of Persia will hear these reports. So let's come and take counsel together. So they, they accuse Nehemiah of the following. First, they accuse him of wanting to rebel against the king of Persia, even though Nehemiah and the king of Persia had a tight and trusting relationship. The king of Persia put Nehemiah over this era, made him governor. He was the king's wine taster for many years. So they had a great, close relationship. There's no way this was going to happen. They also accused him of desiring to be the king of the Jews and that the prophets were going to proclaim him as royalty and being the king. And the truth of the matter is all Nehemiah wanted to do was build a wall. That's all he wanted to do. That was his vision, to build wall to take the reproach away from the Israelites, from the name of Israel and the name of God. We need to be careful, so look at this, at judging a person's motivations by just observing their work. We need to be careful at judging a person's motivations by just observing their work. When we judge someone's motivations just by seeing how they do and what they do, it can often be more of a reflection of our own heart than their heart. So we need to be careful when we do that. Nehemiah answered finally at the time was now right. And he answers in verse 8 and he says this. Finally I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done but now that he prays to God, strengthen my hands. We have some good leadership lessons here. I'm going to give us three things here 
They're not on the screen, but I'm going to give them to you. Three leadership lessons we get from this. Number one, when someone wants to meet with you about something, try to figure out what it's about. <laughs> it's very helpful to, to know what it's about. And if you're doing the Lord's work and the meeting is a, seems like a distraction and it's going to pry you away from that, you have the right to know what the meeting is concerning. If someone asks to meet with you, you have the right to say, okay, I'd be glad, but what is it going to be about? And Nehemiah does this. Secondly, when it comes to distractions, usually they eventually make themselves known. It's hard to know someone's motivation, as I said, but if you continue to follow Christ and do what is right, these motivations are teased out. And after the fourth and the fifth letter, we then start seeing what these motivations were. And finally, number three, and I think one of the most important ones right here with Nehemiah, is you don't have to defend your motivations. You don't have to defend why you do the things you do when you're doing the Lord's work. Nehemiah simply said this, what you're saying is not true. That's all he said. He didn't say, well, you know, I did this and I did that and that's not true because I've done this and how can you accuse me of this and this and that. He didn't get in this long argument. They had all these accusations that said, hey, you want to be the king and you're going to rebel and all this kind of stuff. And he didn't give any defense. He just said, not true. Because he's doing the Lord's work. You don't have to defend yourself when you're doing the Lord's work. And Nehemiah didn't have to defend himself. It's good enough to simply say what you're saying is false. It's not true. You're making this up. He didn't go into some long self-defense. He was doing the work of God, and that was good enough for him. So number one, the first thing we have to talk about when we're finishing what we start is that there will be distractions to avoid. Secondly, there will also be fears to conquer. There will be fears to conquer. Look at verse 10. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, these are reasons we didn't name our children these names. <laughs> Shemaiah was confined to his home. And he said, Nehemiah, let, let's meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let's close the doors of the temple. For they're coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. Now, there's several things here that we see. This man, Shemaiah, for some reason is confined to his home. I don't know if this, there's, it was a pandemic or something going on. or We don't know why, but he either won't or can't leave his home. Maybe it's a personal issue. Maybe it's a health issue. Maybe he was leprous. We don't know what it was. But there's some reason where he's saying, and he's, he's saying that he can't. He's claiming he can't leave his home. So then the governor of Judea has to go to his house. Now, can you imagine being someone where you, you call up our Governor McMaster and say, you have to come to my house. i got a problem. Right? Normally you would go see the governor if you could see him. But he says, no, you need to come here and see me. So what did he do? He gets a report that he's going to go there and, and he's going to go there and see them. And he went there. And when he gets there, he gets a report that there are people coming to kill him. And the only hope is to hide in the temple of God. That's what he tells them. Now, I've never had someone tell me, hey, someone's going to kill you, so you have a decision to make. But this is what he heard. Now, why the temple? Well, it was against the law to enter the portion of the temple they were going into, unless you were a priest. It was against God's law, and the punishment was death. So if someone's looking to kill you, then they're not going to look to kill you in the temple because they can't enter there. But then again, if they're going to kill you, why they probably wouldn't care about the, the law of God either. But it also meant that it would be illegal for Nehemiah to be there as well. 
So he can either die in Shemaiah's house or he can break God's law by going against God's word and hiding in the temple. What would you do? Well, when, you get, when you're given two options like that, you think there's no right answer, but there's a third option, neither. We forget that sometimes. Fear makes us think there's either this or that. There's a third, neither. Look what he says in verse 11. But I said, so should such a man as I run away, and, and what man as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. His first reaction is that he's not going to break God's law to save his own neck. And then God gives him more insight, verse 12. He says, and I understood, and then I saw that God had not sent him as a messenger to warn him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Many times we will sin against God because of fear. And this is what they were hoping they would do. They were hoping he'd be so fearful that he would run to the temple, break God's law, and then the people and the law would deal with Nehemiah and he would be taken out without them having to do a thing about it. It was a complicated, manipulative scheme to kind of flush out him into this area. What does he do? He prays about it. Verse 14, he says this. Remember Tobiah and Sambalot, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Now, he didn't ask God to do something to them like some of the Psalms will do. He just said this, Lord, remember these people. In other words, Lord, you do to them what you think is fair, what you think is just. I'm doing your work, remember these people, Lord. I'm giving them over to you. This distraction, this fear, I'm giving it to you. You handle it, Father. Remember them. I'm going to go about and do your work. When we're doing the work of God, we can't make decisions in fear. Too many bad decisions were made because we fear people or we fear their opinions or we fear their approval or their disapproval, or we fear they may harm us. And when we fear others and we fear situations, what we're really doing is we're loving ourselves more than loving our God. And Nehemiah said, I'm not doing that, I'm not doing either. And God gave him extra insight into it. So we have to understand that doing the Lord's work, there will always be fears to conquer. And number three, there will be accomplishments to praise there will be accomplishments to praise. Look at verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. Now we're not even halfway through the book of Nehemiah and he's already finished the wall, right? Which means that God was going to use him to do much more things for the kingdom. And he did much more things. But the, the initial vision was just to build the wall. And he did it in 52 days, despite all of the obstacles, the complaining, the threats, the lies, the attempted manipulations, the physical obstacles, everything. Nehemiah and the people completed, and they, complete, they completed rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. Now, they could finally settle in the city. They could have a sense of peace as the wall would protect them from potential outside invaders 
And really there are three main reasons why the wall was completed so quickly. I want to give these to you today. And this is a great recipe for being successful when God gives you a vision. Three main reasons why it was completed. Number one, commitment. Nehemiah was committed to the glory of God. He was committed to this wall bringing God glory and removing the reproach from the people of Israel. He was committed to the glory of God. He was committed to his vision. He was not committed to Nehemiah's reputation. We saw that last week where he could have not fed the people. He could have kept all his, his, uh, his benefits to himself. He was committed to the glory of God. And when you're committed to God's glory, when you're doing God's vision, it will be successful. Secondly, he trusted in the Lord and he bathed his work in prayer. He had trusting prayer. Trusting prayer. There's so many times where we feel like maybe we're called to do something. We want to, be, we want to do it and we want to be action-oriented and this is God's will, so it's going to work. And we go and we do God's work. And we think, well, if we're doing God's work, why should I pray about it? Because it's God's work. Nehemiah is always taking a step back and praying about it. Because implementing God's work is where we need the prayer. Figuring out how to do the work of God is where we need the prayer. So he was committed. He had trusting prayer. And finally, number three, the people joined together. They did it together. It wasn't just all Nehemiah. He had all the people helping him and working together. And, they, and when they worked together, they had a spirit of cooperation and they had a spirit of enthusiasm. You have a team of people who will cooperate, who will be enthusiastically, they're committed to the glory of God, and they're trusting and they're putting it in prayer. It will always succeed. We have a golden opportunity, golden opportunity in front of us right now. So many people moving to our area from all over the place. Some that know Jesus, some don't. It's time to start, and some of you haven't quit doing this, but it's time to start sharing the gospel again. It's time to start inviting people to church again. It's, it's time to start saying, hey, come sit next to me in this pew. CDC is giving the green light. The governor is giving the green light. The president, they've all said it's okay on some level. There are still many people who are lost. They are afraid and they need Jesus. And more and more are coming to our area every single day. And if you have a spiritual vision, if you bathe it in prayer, if you're committed to God's glory, not your glory, if you have a team approach, it's going to succeed. Some of you have already been doing that. And God will continue to bless your efforts as the purpose of the church is received that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Well, the lost nations around there said, God's in it. Can you imagine, can you imagine people who met, meets one of us or knows First Baptist Monk's Corner or, or something like that or came across you and they didn't know Jesus, they were lost as the day is long and they said, I don't know what's going on, but God is in that place. People who don't even believe in God, don't even want God in their life said, God is in this. That should be our goal as a community of faith. The outside world says, I don't know, necessarily like what they're preaching in there. I don't necessarily like, well, I like what they're teaching in there. I don't even like Christians. But you can't deny that God is there. One commentator said, 
Judah's enemies tried to make Nehemiah and the Jews afraid, but in the end, they were the ones who feared. That's the thing about spiritual opposition. Your opponent is always scared because they know that you're doing the Lord's work. When you're doing the Lord's work, it will be accomplished. And when you're doing the Lord's work, there's no reason for you or I to be fearful. That's the reaction we should shoot for as a church. When we do things for the kingdom, they ought to be so obvious to the community that God was behind the success. But even in the success, as we're going to see in verse 17, the enemies persisted. Look at verse 17. He says that in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and then Tobiah's letters came to me. Many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah. The son of Era, and his son had taken the daughter of this person, and this person is his wife. And verse 19, and they all spoke of his good deeds in my presence. They said, oh, Tobiah's not a bad, not a bad guy. He's great. He's fine. And he tried to get me killed, Nehemiah's thinking. Oh, he's great, and you're great too. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. The lesson here is that when you're doing God's work, even after the wall is built, the devil is never satisfied. Never satisfied. He's like a prowling lion wandering around the walls. Right? Went to the zoo yesterday. I've seen that lion walking around, prowling around, looking at me, looking at you, looking across from him from the moat, wishing we would jump over the moat. <laughs> That's how Satan is. Never satisfied. He'll always be outside the walls. But even so, we have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear. Well, mid-May, this is the time of the year where people attempt to climb Mount Everest. Wouldn't you love to climb Mount Everest? No, not me. Now, May is the perfect time of year because it's when the snow is soft and the rainy season has ended. That's, that's the summit climb right there. They're almost at the top, those guys. And I was doing some research into what it took to climb Mount Everest because I heard that someone had died this week. And I was doing some research and it came part of my sermon prep, obviously. What, what makes it such a gargantuan task? Well, the reason why is because there's a very good chance of death. I mean, first of all, you can fall off the mountain. There can be avalanches, all sorts of things like that. And you have to, you have to be in great shape. So people spend months training to climb Mount Everest. Experienced climbers. You have to learn to breathe without a lot of oxygen because once you hit 8,000 meters or about 27,000 feet above sea level, your oxygen runs out. And your body only takes in about a third amount of oxygen like normal. So once you get to above that height, and there's only eight peaks in the world that are above that height. They're all in the Himalayas. Everest is the tallest. Yeah, you can't be there very long at that point unless you have a whole bunch of oxygen because you cannot survive. And your oxygen can, can run out. And it takes a minimum before. As snow's melting, as the sun hits the ice in May and it starts breaking up. They're crossing ravines on ladders and all sorts of things. And then they have several other long, grueling climbs and planes up to get to the real part of the, the place where they want to climb. And then they hit the summit climb. This area is called the death zone because this is where your oxygen runs out. You only have a limited number of hours before your body shuts down. And more people die descending the mountain than climbing up. You know why that's the case? Because they get to the mountain, they've summited it, but they're starting to get tired and they're starting to get oxygen deprivation in their brain and their lungs and they're dying and don't realize it. And all the way down, they get tired, they get confused 
And many climbers will just sit down in the snow and just go to sleep and never wake up. And they don't know that's happening to them. They don't know. What, they're confused. Their brain's not working. It's not taking in oxygen. You know, I get 100% of oxygen. Sometimes my brain doesn't work right. I mean, we were Googling for uh, directions to the zoo. And you know, you know what I, I Googled in the car? I Googled zoo map. Who does that? How many zoos are there in the world, right? So sometimes my brain doesn't work right at 100%. Imagine coming down the summit. Brain doesn't work right. Experienced climbers, will, they, they, they even can't handle the mental drain. And there's bodies even on Mount Everest right now where people just took a break and didn't get up again. But the secret to all these climbers being successful really is one thing. It's these guys right here. I got a picture of them. These are the Sherpas. These are the natives of the area. And they climb up and down the mountain all the time. And when they climb, they take, they take your bags, they take your oxygen, your utensils, your food. They take it all. And they have to because they need a job. And it's the only thing some of these people can do. And they die as well. But for every person who has successfully climbed Mount Everest, they did so because they had a Sherpa guiding them the whole way. And they're not allowed to leave the climber there. So if the climber makes a bad decision, they have to help them or have to stay there with them. And the very first person in 1953 to summit Mount Everest, Sir Edmund Hillary, he did it by himself and a Sherpa. No one climbs to Mount Everest without their help. And that's the thing about rebuilding a church, rebuilding your life, following Christ. No one is successful climbing that mountain without a helper. And that helper we know is the Holy Spirit. We can prepare, we can train, we can be educated, we can be the best super Christian that there is. But if the Holy Spirit is not guiding us, if he's not helping us, if he's not taking us by the hand, it is all for nothing. And the Holy Spirit will never leave us. You might have summited and you're coming down. You might be in trouble and don't even know it, but the Holy Spirit does. And he's with you. As we continue to rebuild our church, as we build our lives, as following Christ, all the things that we're called to do as Christians, we can't do it ourselves. We have, we have to train. We have to do what God's called us. We have to be obedient. But we never forget that there's someone holding our hands a whole way, going out in front of us, and that's in who we trust. We trust in God, and that is where our success is. Heavenly Fathers, we close our time together. We thank you that you give us the spirit who literally is called a helper, counselor, who helps us up the mountains of life and brings us down. We thank you that you've given us the spiritual disciplines like reading scripture and, and praying and filling our word with the Bible and doing all these necessary things we have to do to finish what we start. But even so, you've given us something more powerful You've given us a guide, a helper, who gets us up and down the mountain, takes us everywhere, is with us. So, Father, let us never try to do ministry or do anything with a God-sized vision on our own. Let us always acknowledge that we need your help. If it's your vision, you'll give us the help. So, Father, as we close our time together today, let us remember that. If there's one in here that's never placed their faith in you, that today they would do so. Today they would be saved. 
Lord, we give this time to you today. Let us turn back to you and worship today, Father. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, who through his death and burial and resurrection purchased eternal life for us. In his name we pray. Amen.